0: If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand, with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code sup 20 For the insanely low rate of $59. Welcome to the Speech Uncensored Podcast, your destination for nourishing your mind and flourishing in the medical, speech, and language pathology field. This week's guest is Dr. Joshua Allison Burbank, who's joining me to share his thoughts on language nutrition on the res. I've been following Dr. Allison Burbank's work via Instagram, and loving the combination of community activism, SLP awesomeness, and priority on promoting cultural responsiveness. Dr. Allison Burbank is doing such meaningful work, I cannot wait for you guys to hear all about it. We also discuss this really awesome project that he's involved in called Books for Diné Bikea. I cannot wait for you guys to learn about that either. There's so much good stuff in this episode. <laughs> so that's enough out of me. My name is Leanne Porter, I'm your host, and without further ado, let's meet Joshua. All right, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Joshua Allison Burbank. It's a pleasure to have you. How are you doing today? I'm
1: doing very good. Thanks for having me. All
0: right. I'm excited for our topic and learning more about the project um, that you've been working on for quite some time now, um, and it's books for Dine Bekaya. And um, so you're a practicing SLP and during the era of COVID, this project was created and founded. And now you're like, what would you say your role is? Like project lead director?
1: Yeah, I would say co-director. Um, this project started um, in collaboration with a partner of mine, who's also um, American Indian. And we, we just had some ideas going and we, decided to focus on this community-wide intervention and u- utilizing books.
0: Excellent, excellent. And who's your partner?
1: So my, my partner in crime is a, a young leading professional in the area of education and STEM, Danielle Boyer, who's an engineering um, student in Michigan, from the University of Michigan. She is the founder of a nonprofit called Steam Connection. And this young Ojibwe woman, has focused a lot of her community efforts on promoting STEAM, not just STEM, but also art and creativity and um, using robotics education, um, targeting young at-risk children and providing distance and in-person mentorship. And so um, this young this young leader has become a, a leader in not just um STEAM connection, but it's also in a lot of the uh, mentoring and higher education work across American, targeting American Indian youth as well. So kind of a really nice um, interdisciplinary connection between speech-language pathology, public health, and STEAM. So this person has been uh, very Um, important from the get-go, from brainstorming and actually carrying out this project. And even though we're far apart and she's in Michigan and I'm here in New Mexico, we've still been able to get a good amount of books and contribute to um, conversations on how to keep this project going and focus uh, and continue to promote uh, language nutrition and also to promote um, the interest in um, science, technology, and mathematics as well.
0: That's awesome. That is exceptionally well-rounded. I love that. Um, I am just so excited to learn all the things. Like, I want to just jump into learning more about books for Dina Bekea. I want to learn more about you. Like, I just want it to all happen simultaneously. (laughs) But let me backtrack and let's start with you, um, Dr. Allison Burbank. Tell me a little bit more about you, um, your career as a, a speech and language pathologist, and the type of work that you focus your career on right now. Okay.
1: Well, she Joshua Alice in Burbank, you know shea. Look at me, she like is Annie Busheschi. Two hundred that she is Annie that she in New Mexico they not shop. I could Thank you for uh, giving me a chance to share a little bit about myself and introduce myself in my native language. What you just heard was me introducing myself in Diné Biza, the, the language of the, the Navajo. And the Navajo refer to themselves in their language as the Diné, the people. And many other indigenous peoples um, also refer themselves as the people in their own language. And so that's what's core to this project, is that this is uh, folk targeting the people, the children of the people, and also presenting the intervention, which are these books and the education that we're doing as focused on the people. And so when a, a Navajo person introduced themselves, it's all about maintaining those connections, connections to community, communication, uh, connections to family, and that's what's part of the introduction, not just your name and where you're from. It's also your clans, your mom's clan, your dad's clan. That's what I did. I am from the, Kligit, the Weaver's clan, my mom's clan. My dad is not, not Navajo. He's from another tribe called Acoma Pueblo. So I introduced my clan there and said he's from there. My, grandfa- my maternal grandfather is from here. My paternal grandfather is from here. That's who I am as a Navajo man. And that's so important to Native people. And I think that's what's made these current times so challenging for indigenous people is that that disruption and kinship has made it tough to um, prevail and to make it through these challenging times a bit that we are making progress and native people are, are, are going back to old ways to get through this pandemic right now. What's, what's important is this core value of this piece, kinship and family F refers to family, those around you. And that's what's been true to everything I've done as a speech-language pathologist and what I've set out to do, and that I wanted to serve my people. And I've known from a very early point that speech-language pathology was what I wanted to do. And I grew up on the Navajo Nation in a small town called Tuhatchee, New Mexico, a small, small town um, located on the New Mexico side of the Navajo Nation. And the Navajo Nation is, is the largest tribe and, and um, size-wise, and we can get into a whole conversation about sizes of tribes and what those mean, but the Navajo Nation is significant and expands across three states, New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah. I live on the New Mexico side, born and raised on a Navajo Nation, went to school, high school, um, primary and secondary school on the reservation, and the first time I really left was to go to college and to pursue my career in speech-language pathology. But, taking a few steps back, I knew I wanted to pursue this field because I was very observant in my my young adult life, my adolescent years, and i I recognized in the community that there that developmental disabilities exist, that sometimes children and adolescents grew differently, and what I also was starting to understand was more about my identity and my cultural background, and what that lens provided for interpreting when neural development goes in a different way, when when development goes a different path, what contributes to that. And so naturally I was making connections between things you do, things you don't do, and what might happen if you do those things. So learning about cultural taboos, but also learning about those um, traditional teachings about parenting, child rearing, also about self-regulation, about identity, communication, expression, how do you say something. And that's a teaching that I always go back to. um, Back when I was home helping out um, uh, with some of my um, family duties um, back in the back deeper into the reservation yesterday, my, my uncles reminded me about the same uh, through the same that watch what you say, watch what you do, watch how you think, because someone's always watching. Someone's always wanting to communicate with you. So watch what you say, because that person that hears it or understands it, it's going to go and respond in a certain way. And you never want that to be negative so that just really got me thinking about my career, what I'm doing, and how I present myself as a clinician, as a researcher, as a parent, as just a human as well. That everything we say is powerful. And so there's medicine, there's power in what we say, whether it's spoken or if it's symbolic or if it's gestural, there's power in that because someone else is listening. And we want that always to be a positive exchange. And so... Just to share a little bit more about my pathway, uh, the schooling part, uh, I attended the University of New Mexico and uh, majored in speech and hearing sciences and linguistics, and then went off to the University of Kansas to obtain my master's and PhD in speech-language pathology. I'm a kid person. Um, I'm a pediatric speech-language pathologist. Currently, I work um, for the Indian Health Service in um, Shiprock, New Mexico, and a larger um, facility called Northern Navajo Medical Center. Larger in that many of the clinics that do serve my reservation are fairly small and rural, but the area that I work in is um, serves a vast area of the northern part of the Navajo Nation. So I see patients of all ages, of all abilities, all needs um, from the really the Four Corners area, Colorado, um, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico side as well. So that's my, my current job now. I have a um, adjunct um, faculty position with the University of Vermont, where I do teaching, and engagement, and continue to share my knowledge on neurodevelopmental disabilities, but also on combining that with public health work. My PhD focused on uh, neurodevelopmental disabilities, learning more about them, how to treat them, but also my correlative area was public health. So understanding that there's an issue and then what to do about it, whether it's parenting education, whether it's prevention interventions, or whether it was trying to address larger systemic issues. So that's how I think about my role here on the reservation now is I know there's a need, I'm feeling that need as a clinician, but also there's a larger need, there's something systemic happening. And now with current events, there's a pandemic happening now, and that's really hitting those core pieces of my people, which is kinship and family and resiliency. It's being impacted by all the stressors of the pandemic, but also I have a calling as not just a clinician, but as a researcher and as a navigable male to combine all that knowledge to help improve the the well-being of young children and their families here on the Navajo Nation.
0: That's excellent. Thank you for that. That was really informative. Um, It really speaks to me, your um, uh, tie in with public health and how you recognize that as a clinician, you can have a really important impact on an individual level, but you see the bigger picture and you see these systemic influences and how that's that's the bigger picture, right? And that's how we affect change at the public health level in the greater group. And so I'm really excited that you've tied that in and that you're coming at it really from the two levels. Like you're on the ground with the like one-on-one interactions, but then you see that to affect real lasting, meaningful change, like you also have to address it at the overarching, the system level. So um, I get really excited anytime anybody talks about public health, because yeah, I'm right there with you. That's a crucial part um, of of the trickle-down effect, like how people um, get access to services or are denied access to services. Um, and then what they do with those services when they get them, because a lot of it has to do with um, health literacy too, and what people understand about health processes and health. And then that's got to tie in with their own personal views and perspectives and values. And if what's available to them in the health system does not match up with their values, well, then they're not going to go seek those health services. And then they're going to have poorer outcomes. Is that their fault? Is that their problem to overcome? No, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, that's where health services needs to um, account for these things and be appropriate to the people that they're serving in the locations that they're at. So, okay. Okay. <laughs> I get a little soapboxy, so feel free to join me on that soapbox at any time.
1: (laughs) So I forgot to mention that I um, do work on a farm right off, um, right on the the reservation boundaries. And something that's been really important to me as well is serving the community and what happens on this farm as well as um, traditional food growing and food distribution. So we do get people who are in need, who come for food, or um, in this case, um, feed for their livestock. And so I have some Navajo farmers that just came over asking for corn stocks. And that's real common in Navajo culture and native culture as well, too, is you just kind of have people swing by just like this. And this just proves that how finding that balance of academia and um, leadership, but also maintaining your ties to your community... Is is such a important piece too to find all those inner connections there and make it work as well, and so that's what's going to make us survive and move forward during this pandemic is making maintaining those connections, whether it's virtually or in safe manners, and really going back to what people need, and that's how the book for the project started. Was like, we do, we we can try to connect people with therapists, try to connect children on the reservation with counselors, and do all this, but. There's a staffing issue and needs are being, be, the needs are, are vast and trying to do something like that is going to be tough. So what can we do where we're targeting family connections? We're focusing on that resiliency factor as well. So naturally, as a speech language pathologist, I'm interested in language nutrition. I'm interested in helping people to provide quality, rich language and social interactions in natural routines right there in the home. And when sometimes, as clinicians, as researchers, we think we have to deliver something, bring something in so parents can do something or caregivers can learn a new skill set. But many times, there are already routines happening, whether it's a feeding routine, a bathing routine, a cultural or some type of routine, that, where there's interactions between the child and their influencers of learning. And that's a, a concept that I've used a lot in my teaching. Is, Reminding people that it's not just parents or grandparents, that there are other people influencing learning and language development and young children. And so when we think about those influencers and learning, we get at um, those connections and we learn about those routines. And um, what I thought would be impactful is if, well, let's do something simple. Let's provide a book, a book where the child can see themselves in the pictures, in the stories. But also parents can get involved through a shared storybook intervention or shared storybook reading and highlight and retell or relearn or for the first time hear those stories of resiliency. And that's what the books for Danette Bikia have focused on is bringing in and delivering culturally tailored Danette children's books written by Danette authors that focus on that overcoming of something difficult, overcoming of something challenging. And From the books that are for the board books targeting the younger population to the books targeting our adolescents and young adults, there's that central theme there of resiliency, of self efficacy, of overcoming, of hope. And that's what we need to focus on, not just as Navajo people, but as a nation, as a world. That if we work together, if we focus on maintaining connections, and if we focus on those routines happening in those households that are already there, that's how we can overcome some of this, the, the, the burden of that pandemic, the burden of that stress that the, the burden, the stress that the pandemic has brought on to us as, as, as um, people. And I believe that there's power in these stories as well. These traditional stories have lasted generations and go way back in, into um, prehistory. And those stories have continued on. They brought in hope. They, they help explain things. There's a lot of um, medicine in, um, when those stories are told to the younger population. And so my partner and I have, from the very early on of this project, wanted to not just get the books out, but tell the stories of the authors, to tell the stories of why these um, teachings continue on over time. And so this isn't just a book collection. It isn't just a book distribution project. It's also it's a community intervention of, of resilience and also restoration as well. Something that happened early on in the pandemic, as across the nation, um, schools closed immediately when the viral spread was extremely high. Schools closed, public spaces closed, public and tribal libraries closed. And on the Navajo Nation, we're large, we're big. But we don't have many public libraries. We still rely a lot on public schools, Bureau of Indian Education school distribution projects to get books and print to children in rural parts of the of the Navajo Nation. And to kind of put things in context, into a context, um, many parts of the Navajo Nation are very rural, and many families still live without running water, still live without electricity. Where I went yesterday to my hometown, many of my family members still have um, to haul water and still have to defrost their water for their livestock as well, too. So it's a it's a Unique lifestyle. It's a, a lifestyle you have to get used to hauling wood, bringing in wood to keep the house warm, traveling 30, 45 minutes to go to the local grocery store as well. So, that type of lifestyle is naturally going to bring a hard work, a good work ethic, and resiliency as well. But because of the, the stress of the pandemic, many of those, the ability to do some of that is becoming more challenging as well. So, going back to the book project, the goal was to get uh, uh, several hundred children's books to some very um, high need parts of the reservation um, during the in summer 2020, where the summer lunch distribution project program was not in operation for a couple weeks, and so um, a part of my partner and I partnered with um, some mutual aid uh, COVID relief organizations to get these books into food packages. So these food packages that were being delivered safely to um, remote and rural areas of the reservation, we were sticking books in there as well and providing our resources as, um, on how to use the books or what the purpose of this project was for. And so we were able to do that rather quickly through um, social media and crowd fundraising um, to get a, get those 100 books plus several thousand more to rural parts of the Navajo Nation, um, and not just in the New Mexico side, but the Arizona side and the Utah side as well. Books Benevikea was has been very successful in that we set a goal, we reached that goal, we increased the goal, financial goal, but we also had a very powerful response from um, publishing companies, and we had the um, Salina Bookshelf in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is a multicultural publishing company that focuses on the net children's books, writing them, publishing them and helping to distribute them who matched every single donation during this project dollar for dollar, donated their shipping and worked with us to promote the project as well. So uh, we may have not reached our, may have, we didn't reach our financial goal, but really we exceeded our initial book distribution goal and it's continuing to to go on. We get I get um, books, uh, several shipments of books every couple of weeks to my farm here in Waterflow, New Mexico, and I put put it out to our connections to help get these books out quickly. And so, by the time the books come in, uh, we we make sure they're, they're they're good to go, good for, good for they're, they're what we ordered, and they're, they're safe to get out. And within a matter of days, we can get these to really rural areas of the Navajo Nation through mutual aid organize, organizing. And so that's been very fun to be part of and to um, see these communities receive the books and to receive food and to receive the resources they need if they're quarantined or if they're isolating for, for public health purposes. And just also to see a book, which seems so simple, but to see a child receive something that they haven't been able to get in in almost a year it's powerful and then also to see at the same time that we're helping to get important needs met just basic human needs met as well it's been very a very rewarding um, experience and we're going on almost a year now with this project and it's been fun and it's been rewarding
0: that's incredible i'm like I have all the feelings right now. Like that work just hits like all the buttons for my happiness. (laughs) Like it's so incredible. I love seeing all the different organizations that are involved in this. You know, you've got booksellers and publishers like passionate about this work and supporting it. Um, You've got people across the country donating to it and community members within the community donating to this project to see it successful. Like you've been able to meet and exceed the goals and continue it and make this like a long-term project. Like that's so beautiful. And then just the, the geographic reach and the logistics involved in all that and the quickness with, with which you and your colleagues and partners have been able to respond to this and meet needs, um, is incredible. Like that's amazing. That's rapid. Uh, I'm massively impressed. I think it's beautiful. And it's one of the really great things about like learning about this, um, project and then how it's grown and developed and continued is just so awesome and empowering. Like I love it. Also really awesome to follow you on Instagram and to see you post, um, about the shipments coming in and the delivering And you post about the work you do on your farm. And I just, I really love the philosophy and the importance that you see of blending all these things together about connecting people with with the land, but with language. And then your focus on resilience, like it all is hitting like all of our needs as human beings that I think we start to, to overlook or be slightly dismissive of in favor of other things where we think this has more value than that. And it really, it puts us out of sync with with each other and with where we encompass space, I guess. So um, I, I get really excited when I meet people who make it their, their work and then execute it. So I'm just like all kinds of loving your story. Like, please keep talking. <laughs> um, oh, oh, I wanted to go back to the beginning of the, Um, like the GoFundMe campaign, because that's how you're able to receive these donations and then take those resources and turn it into books um, for the community. So um, do you have some numbers? Now, I looked at the GoFundMe page today, and there's been um, $2,500 donated to date. Um, Can you tell me about the amount of books that you've been able to distribute?
1: Yeah, first, uh, I'll I'll start with kind of um, how much we initially planned on getting. I think we wanted to um, get 600, I think we started off with 600 children's books. And the goal was to get one book into uh, one mail distribution effort early in late spring, early summertime, I believe, uh, of last year. And so we had set a goal for a couple thousand dollars. Let's try to raise this. And then we raised that within like, an hour or two, I think, when we first opened up the GoFundMe and started spreading the the, the news across um, social media outlets, and then we expanded it to five thousand, and eventually moved it up to ten thousand, ten thousand dollars, and we hit all those goals. Now we've exceeded over twenty thousand dollars, I believe, is what we raised so far, and we bumped up our goal to fifty k, and that kind of set it up high enough that we would continue working towards it and continue getting that amount. And so what I can say now is that with the match and with some other outside um, matches and donation of books completely free from publishing companies when we would order to make these bulk orders is we've been able to get out several thousand children's books. I want to say between 5,000 and 6,000 children's books have been able to go out. This includes board books and also includes uh, the books for the young adult um, um, children's literature series and age group as well. And so um, and, and there's more coming in. Um, I have a couple of pallets coming in the next few um, days, hopefully, and we'll, and we'll try to get out by ne- within the next two weeks as well. But that's pretty exciting. We think about maybe how big our tribe is and, and the, the number of books as well. But in an area like Navajo Nation where there's low print and there's a scarcity of uh, actual hard copy children's books and there, there, there's no light public libraries as well, To be able to get this amount of books out this quickly and for it to be quality, brand new children's books, hardback books um, written by Diné authors is huge and significant. And considering all the logistics pieces as well too, which does cost. And um, Danielle and I do this on a volunteer basis. We don't get paid for this. We don't take any of the profits as well. Everything we do and probably more of our own nonprofit and our own fundraising organization efforts go into this as well too. But we've been able to be to get a good amount and make our money stretch, the donation stretch quite a bit to be able to get these books and other materials and food items as well as well too but every single dollar that has been donated has gone towards the purchase of these books and um, it's i'm excited to say that we've been able to get that many books over 10 times as much as what we wanted to get out initially and we want to do more we want to keep this project going and so maybe we look at partnering with reach out and read programs maybe we develop our own distribution project because I think it's powerful that the message is not that this is a book distribution project, that this it's not a book drive. This is an intervention. This is us trying to fill a gap and also to meet the needs of, of children who are isolating that home, who have been on virtual home instruction since March of last year, that we're able to get these to them. And we're also able to do it collaboratively with food distribution projects as well. So the whole family is is benefiting from this outreach and and, and these interventions. And I want to say, too, that the the food distribution efforts that we've, the food distribution organizations that we've partnered, partnered with have also focused on resiliency as well in their own way, addressing food systems. And so many of the organizations that we've worked with are distributing traditional food items. So, traditioning um, blue cornmeal, tradition, uh, distributing traditional teas and other types of food medicines that are also important for the family as well. So, this whole project, every part of it has been intentional. We've thought it through, we've done it, and what we coined it as a quote, good way. We want to do this in a good way. We're not just trying to give give outs. we're not just trying to give out free items. We're actually trying to give out meaningful, culturally tailored, tools that the family can use to nourish themselves by eating it or by reading and engaging with young children with. And so that's especially important to me in any of my community work that I do. And I think us as speech language pathologists being communication facilitators is that we're not just here to help individuals communicate. We're also here to help communities communicate as well. And so if we think about it from the perspective of we have a large community who experiences a high number of developmental delay in their young children, that community is going to have trouble communicating. But also, if this is a community that experiences high rates of racism, discrimination, or historical trauma, then we have, we have, they're going to have trouble communicating as well. So let's step in and help that. And so my challenge to other speech language pathologists and other child development people is that we need to go back to what it really means to be human. And some of this may seem like, well, that's out of our, that's out of our scope, or that doesn't sound like us as clinicians or evidence-based practice. But I remember seeing somewhere in my, my graduate program at the University of Kansas, somewhere up on a wall that there was a quote, and I forget who wrote it, but it's that communication is the heart of being human, or communication is the heart of the human experience. And that's so true. And so if we think about language first. Language is everything and how we communicate is so vital to that human experience and if anything's getting in the way of that, whether it's a large global pandemic or whether it's infant mental health or whether it's some type of health issue, then we need to step in and do something about it as well. We have a higher calling to not just address that um, deficit of communication but also to help address those systemic issues that are even leading up to that communication deficit. So Hopefully we can get more people to get on board of that and think about those things and think creatively that we can do a lot more than what we say and talk about at circle time. We can do a lot more of what we say in our individual speech therapy sessions that if we want to really empower someone, then let's think about their whole life. Let's think about their food ways. Let's think about their learning ways. Let's think of their family ways as well. And let's address those and let's help them.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. I I have found as a um, in my practice, working with adults in the medical setting, um, they've experienced a drastic change in their function that's affected, you know, they're coming to see me for the ways that it's affected their communication or their cognition. And they're really struggling with that change in their role and in their family. Some of them were primary caregivers or leaders in their, in their family. And now they're finding that they're now dependent on other members of their family for care. And that wasn't th- what they're used to. And so that's an, an incredible mental and emotional thing to, to wrap around and to come to terms with. And often our progress addressing our communication and cognition deficits won't, we won't see meaningful change there until they're able to create some sort of reconciliation with those other areas. And so while I am not trained to help them and encourage them through their, that coping area, um, I give them the space to recognize how that has impacted them and that, that what they're feeling is valid and okay as, as part of their journey and accepting kind of what their temporary or what their normal is for right now. And that just goes to like recognizing that we, we do have to see something of a bigger picture. We have to recognize what are the needs of this person. Um, and that's what you're seeing as you're working, um, within pediatrics, like how language is so important to this, but it's how is language also impacted by their nutrition, by their resilience, by all these other factors that you see impacting them on a daily basis. And what I think is so impressive by your work is that you're not like, well, that's not within my scope of practice. I can't treat that. I'll just rail against like all these things that I see that are such a problem. You're like, How can I have a meaningful impact? Like, you are doing so much; it's incredible. I feel like I'm trying to count them. I think you have at least five full time jobs, probably more. (laughs) It's really amazing, and so I think that that's an important message to share. I know not everybody out there can do the type of work that you do or um, the impact that you have. Like, I think you're like very unique and amazing in that respect, but just having SLPs understand these other influences and see how they can impact. And it starts with being aware, having that awareness of it. And so then, then the next steps, (laughs) like, I can't, I can't counsel people on the next steps after that, but knowing that they exist and how they impact, um, the child or the adult that you're working with, I think is pretty crucial.
1: Yeah, and the fact that we're starting to ask those questions, or we we have been asking those questions, maybe just not at the right times, but that we're even thinking about that larger role that we have with with individuals, really goes along with that the the opposite of what we've been doing for so many decades that deficit approach. Let's go in and fix something, and we leave, or and rather than asking like, what, what is this truly a deficit? what can we how how is it impacting their the individual, their connections, their relationships, and their quality of life as well too. So that gets a, a more broader, um, more impactful and significant approach to how we treat and how we serve our our, our patients. And it goes across not just healthcare. It should go into education, it should go into how we try to, to provide social supports to anyone really too. So I think this conversation has to be ongoing. And from the way we understand and define our profession is, is a starting point, but also how we educate future clinicians, how we um, think of our roles as leaders within the larger ASHA membership as well. Of like, Are we just clinicians? Are we just academics? Or what other roles do we have to fill? And you're right, maybe not everyone Needs is is capable of doing these things or is going to understand this right away. But we at least start to, as a community, acknowledge that some of us have the opportunity to be a a good, solid clinician, but also to combine that with public health work or to combine that with early early childhood education initiatives as well. And so I think that's what we do as a profession is we start to think outside the box of what have I learned as a speech-language pathologist? What do I know as an influencer of language learning? That can also go to address systemic issues or address the way we um, want to define ourselves as speech-language pathologists and audiologists as well, too. I think if we're tied back to communication and we're tied back to language, that become, that's essential but for everything else. And some of our colleagues might say Things otherwise as well, but we have to be able to communicate first, and then we learn. We have to communicate in order to address the behavior. So communication behavior is communication, and so whether that's a attempt to communicate and say first words for a young child, or whether it's a community in need saying, "This is what I need. This is what's going to help us become better." How do we do that? How do we respond to that question? Is I think our role and other our other colleagues as well have a can can have a in that as well, too. So I think the future of public health work is going to fall on many of us as allied health professionals, speech language pathologists, rehab therapists, and to look at learning. Where are children learning? Where are adolescents learning? And how do we modify or how do we use those teaching spaces to help that individual have a good quality of life? learn where they're from to have confidence as well to go on and do whatever they want to do. So that's if if this project has any major takeaways, it's that we got some really great books out to communities in need and it's ongoing and maybe other school organizations that we partnered with are going to focus on getting traditional Dinette children's stories out more and more. Hopefully this is a model for how with just a little bit of creativity using the network that's already here, using mostly speech-language pathologists and educators through social media, that we can make change and we can make things happen rather quickly. We don't have to wait for grants. We don't have to wait for politics. We don't have to wait for funding. All that stuff's important and essential, and we need to have people at, at those and take taking on those battles as well. But we also need people who can make things happen fast. And I feel like us, as speech-language pathologists, do that we're constantly thinking of innovative and creative ways to make things happen fast, and so let's let's hopefully other people will join me and work in their communities as well to do similar projects.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to hear. I hope in the future, like that's always my goal is to hear back from listeners from these episodes about how they hear stories from other SLPs and then they get excited and they get inspired and they go make meaningful changes in their communities too. Like that's my favorite thing on the planet. Um, Well, it's kind of like speaking of that, I'd like to know um, a little bit more about how people can become more involved in the work that you're doing. What are some ways that they can contribute to the longevity of the books for Diné Bekeya?
1: So and we're still accepting donations. Um, part of our next phase is to look at maybe an alternative platform for collecting donations or collecting um, um, volunteer time as well for this project. And maybe it's taking the, the platform from GoFundMe and maybe looking at a non nonprofit status as well. My partner with Steam Connection already has nonprofit status, but we've talked about, how do how can we keep this project going on the navajo nation and other neighboring tribes as well or maybe it's a network that gets established too people are doing it with their own tra- their own tribal communities too if there's if there's book scarcity and so what the plan is now is to continue pushing the fundraiser and we have a goal of $50,000 we're close to the, we're, we're halfway there and with another 25k we can get a large amount of books to some very high need areas. And something that I want to share, I mean, it, it, we're mid-January, um, a lot of schools are returning back to session um, across the nation. Many schools are returning back to in-person session, or they already have. That's not the case for the Navajo Nation. Many of the schools here are still virtual and are going to likely stay virtual um, through the rest of the semester into into the summertime as well. So that means less access to libraries, less access less access to books, and uh, what that means is we're going to be going on over a year of children not having that really fun childhood experience of going to the library or checking out books and taking it home to share with their parents and turning it back in. That because of COVID restrictions and um, additional heightened um, precautions on the Navajo Nation, uh, and it's it's going to be a while before some of that quote, normalcy returns. And so we can do a lot with another, if we reach our goal of 50K, we can get more books out. We can plan for um, the next phase of our continued early literacy and language nutrition work that we do here on the Navajo Nation. And my plan is to maybe look at mobile libraries, uh, maybe look at collaborating with Reach Out and Read projects to really emphasize the need for the children's books. I'm not saying any other books, books are important. Any type of print is important, but if it's culturally tailored books, we're adding another layer of community service to it as well as we are providing access to quality books and an intervention. So um, that's the next phase. Keep fundraising and plan for next steps.
0: Excellent. So I was thinking about how SLPs, um, might be able to also kind of continue this mission in their own way, in addition to financially supporting the work, is um, to access the reading list and consider purchasing these books for their own collections and for their own practice as well. So um, are there a couple titles that you can share that you recommend um, SLPs add to their their library?
1: There's a whole list of Books, novel books that we have been promoting, and you can you can join my follow me on my Instagram. I'm at Indian SLP. That's the letter N D N SLP, and you can look at my stories and see the significance of why I use that title, um, and 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 see the books that I recommend as well. There are a lot of books out there, and it's been going on for decades where um, maybe a non-native person is telling the story, or maybe it's an re- interpretation of this traditional story that's out there. Those books are important. They have their place. They have their role. But as we move forward in, a, in also prioritizing anti-racism and also looking at uh, the need for diversity, inclusivity and, and helping people that share and learn their own stories, it needs to be the net authors it needs to be the people telling their own stories and so every single book that we recommend and put out is written by a net net person navajo person and many of the stories are traditional stories around certain ceremonies like first laugh the significance of the first laugh story so the first laugh experience and i'll explain that book too as well that's the one i I, I recommend everyone get um, amongst all the others there are also stories that are contemporary, more modern-day interpretations of some of these traditional teachings, and also include um, many current events as well too. Modern-day happening, mm-hmm. modern-day happenings, and, and those stories are important and significant, and, and children are going to relate to it. I also think um, these books um, present these these traditional routines that are going to be. Um, familiar to the young speaker as well living the young reader and on, that are in the real parts of the Navajo Nation and the book that I mentioned earlier First Laugh that was written by, uh, written by a Navajo author and is published by Cambridge Publishing that story first laugh, first laugh Welcome Baby is a story about the first laugh ceremony that a young child has um, when they laugh for the first time and to kind of sum it up if a family member a friend makes the child laugh for the first time, we mark that developmental milestone by having a big party. And so the person that makes the child laugh throws the party for the young child. And so this is when, when I, get, I get validated as a speech-language pathologist and as a speech-language pathologist too, is that what I do is to help highlight and celebrate those developmental milestones around communication, and it's already happening in my culture first laugh party, puberty ceremonies of reaching a certain developmental milestone, That's, I'm, uh, my teachings already explain that and, and have and acknowledge those, those things too. And so this book tells a story about the party, about the sheep, about the meal, about what's happening between the community and the family as well. Right now, first laugh parties aren't able to happen because of COVID restrictions. Community, family gatherings, social gatherings aren't happening as well. But families are still celebrating that development milestone on their on their own on the reservation amongst other ceremonies too. It's back to the home, back to what those what those parties mean. But it presents a sense of hope that eventually we can have these parties again. We can have these ceremonies again, and I think that's important. And I think it it reminds the child and the family about those the significance of what happens when that young child laughs for the first time. But it's retelling of those teachings as well of why this is important. Why do we do this? This is why. This is what it looks like. Here's what we. Here's what it's going to look like when it happens in your household. So I highly recommend that book. Um, First laugh. Um, Welcome baby. Is, is, and it's written by an author. And it's you can find that book on steamconnection.org and a link to go and purchase that book as well. And um, you can also check out my social media page on on Instagram too and see that book post and see um what other um teachings and uh, components of that book can be brought into your intervention
0: yes and i will i will have those um links up in the show notes for people to access and go directly to as well and visit um awesome that's great oh yes cuz also on steamconnection.org is a list of uh, many books uh, spanning like from uh, the picture books for children to um, books for adolescents, like chapter books as well. So there's um, a lot there that people can access and resource.
1: <laughs> and I was just going to say, if you utilize and promote these books as well, you're also supporting the now authors as well. So I hope I hope uh, we can get more of these powerful stories outside of the Nebikeya and into other classrooms and other spaces because it, they're powerful stories.
0: Yes. When you were telling us about First Laugh, Welcome Baby, I was like, that would be such a great book to give when I'm invited to baby showers, you know, like, because we wouldn't think to to be like to, to market. I mean, it is it's like, oh, baby laughed. But like, to, to understand that, like, that's so important across so many cultures, and that like, it is celebrated, like, we're gonna throw a party for it. Like, I love that. And I think sharing that story, and that recognition of how important like recognizing developmental milestones like that is um would be really special. So I just I really I'm excited about checking out that book. <laughs> um, earlier I was brainstorming and I was trying to think like, um, how can we support the work that you do in addition to the um financial support of the books for Dina Bikea um for buying these books for our own use and our own practice. And um, and then just sharing it with other people, like if we're on social media, just getting the word out, just making people more aware of them. And then I wondered if you would be receptive if there were like some real go getters out there about um, having like a virtual volunteer, because I'm sure people would be really interested in supporting the work and helping you with different areas of it. So um, how would that work with you like are you receptive to that idea
1: yes i'm definitely receptive and welcome any input that um any help that my colleagues and larger community want to want to offer and provide i think communities are necessary to help um to expand these projects and so i I welcome help and i wanted to share and highlight that um, Asha does have different constituency groups Uh, many of them um, are have um, websites or um, annual w- and quarterly meetings as well. I want to highlight the Native American Caucus, and I'm on the advisory council, which is just a kind of senior leadership who have see have been field leadership roles within the caucus and continue to provide support to it. We're currently going to major reorganization, and we're, we're trying to build up our caucus as well and reach out to other um, Native American speech-language pathologists and audiologists, but also anyone that wants to be part of trying to address these, these various needs I've, I've highlighted in our conversation today um, as speech-language pathologists. And so consider joining the Native American Caucus as well, too, and, and, and that can be a potential hub for continuing not just books for Dinebikeya, but other projects that specifically target uh, American Indian and Alaska Native communities as well. I also want to say that this does take a lot of work to be able to um, take the money, purchase books, and distribute it and get them out. That, that, that takes a good chunk of Danielle and I's time. And we also want to promote the book, the fundraiser, and that takes a good amount of time as well. So a lot of this can be done remotely, too. So if anyone is is a go-getter and wants to help push the book and reach out to some publishing companies as well who want to donate more to Net Children's Books or want to give us stuff at a discount, I certainly welcome that input as well. And if anyone has interest in learning more about the needs of American Indian, Alaska Native, other Indigenous communities, I'm happy to help answer those questions as best as I can or help connect you to our kind of broader network of, of um, professionals within ASHA, within AAA, but also organizations like the Association of University Centers on Disability, also the National Institutes of Health or other Center for Disease Control as well, too, that our members of the caucus have ties and, are, and connections to because when we're trying to target American Indian health, it's it's it needs to be a tackled by all, all professions, and from educators to researchers to allied health professionals, to help address all these different factors that impact health of the community. So I'm happy to help make connections, help make introductions, but also I welcome help with the project as well.
0: Good, wonderful. Um, I'm wondering if you have any stories that you can share about how the books have been received in the communities that you've been dropping them off in. Um, what can you share about that?
1: Yeah. So every now and then I do get pictures from the folks at the front line who are delivering the book packages and the food packages. And when I do get these pictures in, it gets me, it gets me excited. It gets me motivated and to see young children who grew up like I did. And are able to experience that joy of getting a brand new book and a book that's, that has a traditional teaching in it as well. And for me, growing up where I did, I got books from school if I was lucky. And, but most of the time, it was going to the local border town of Gallup, New Mexico with my, my parents and being able to check out books. And this didn't happen. That so was very infrequent that this happened. Be able to check out books and, and have them, take them home, that was such a big deal for me. And that's not happening now. And so I think back to what those children are feeling in those pictures—children standing in front of hogan's and that have dirt floors—and to be holding these books that we fundraise for and are able to purchase and hand-selected and distributed, and also to see them, see these young children being fed with healthy traditional foods as well too—it's—I I can't even describe how meaningful those experiences have been to see the pictures come in. But also to be out in the community as well, which this is true story, this does happen when I do go out, I go home or I go to other areas, to actually see children carrying these books around too. And it's like part of me when the books get delivered and they go out, I think I'll never see them again. But then they pop up here and there. you are like, look what I have. Or, look at this book that I got. And so that's just that, – this that kind of brings tears to mind. It gets me so emotional that – that we got something to a child and they're using it to become part of their routine as well. So that's happened a couple times where I've been either back in my hometown or I've been out in the community as well. And these books pop up and it's like, Oh, they're, 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 they're right there. And it, we know how those are tied back to our project. And so they're getting out there. And so, so to donors, those who have volunteered um, many of you who um, have, have promoted the project as well, they're getting out there and they're sticking. And that's, that's, it, it's powerful. And it's, that that's my calling as a speech language pathologist and i'll keep doing it
0: that's wonderful i love hearing that too you've got me all the feels again <laughs> ah, so i think it's worth noting like the the incredible importance of tying all like your your whole mission of tying everything back together again in the work that you do um, the importance that, that you're not accepting just any kind of children's books, that they, they're they very intentional books by Dene authors for Dene children um, because of the the longstanding history of our government separating culture from, from people. So there's a lot of healing in that, I feel like, as well.
1: Absolutely. Um, and I think that word healing... We don't always make that connection between that and special education or or being a um, speech-language pathologist. But that's part of culturally responsive care. That's part of cultural competency, cultural humility, is knowing that this community went through a very devastating experience and still goes through a lot of these um, moments of trauma now, today. And we can have a whole discussion, too, about all those factors that impact the young American Indian Alaska Native reader such as racism, discrimination, inadequate education services, no special, no access to special education services. we go on and, on and on and on about all those bad things that happen and impact the kids that we're targeting now. But if we are providing a, a tool or a way to help bridge an important thing like access to books and access to print, but also focusing on that resiliency factor, Also, by highlighting what I and I don't know if "simple" is the right word, but a simple way to get meaningful items—a very something as simple as a book—into a household, which can spark conversation, spark storytelling, spark that language nutrition. Then we're doing our jobs, and we can and we can have a larger impact. I think so.
0: All right. Well, as we come into our final few minutes, um, I. I want you to like tell me like, what does it look like to to dream big when there's no limits and no obstacles? What is the best, most amazing outcome um, you could picture the books for Dina Bikea achieving?
1: I wanna be able to get this sustainable where children and these, maybe it's a select few communities to start off with, but eventually the whole reservation in other communities as well where a book can be easily accessed, whether it's through a free little free library or whether it's through a targeted delivery system partnering with the local Indian Health Service. But where children can get these books through well-child visits or where they can get these books by going to a chapter house meeting or some type of cultural event and to see access to these books that are traditional and have those stories in them. And then also for the family, the caregivers to have access to some type of prompt, whether it's in the book or whether it's online or through a community-wide effort to say, this is what shared storybook reading looks like. This is what language nutrition looks like. Here's what you can do to expand on this book. And so to be very SLP about it and say, here's what you can do to expand on this text. Here's that one-up you can deliver to this child that's free and all you need is a book or a picture. And then maybe that will spill over and generalize into other routines and other spaces and, and help improve interactions between children and caregivers. That's what I dream of and what I what I want to work towards. And so maybe it looks like a mobile library that goes around the Navajo nation. Um, Dolly Parton did it. Other people have done it before. So it's definitely doable, but maybe if it's focused on the nest storytelling and Something that I've dreamed of is like, how do you, what attracts kids on the reservation? I think back to my upbringing too. It was like snow cones and sheep, sheep and lambs. Like that's what always draw me, draw me to something. If someone was distributing or giving out something. So I want to think about that some more. And I welcome input I welcome feedback and help to what this could look like. Um, is, is it um, getting, is it a matter of just purchasing books and putting them out there? But I also want the intervention piece, that education, parent coaching piece to be there as well. And so maybe we're thinking about a large scale research study, uh, getting information out to um, parents that's accessible and meaningful. I think there's plenty of grant opportunities out there. And we've seen that happen with other populations, other people of uh, communities of color as well. The um, Talk to Me Baby uh, program and initiative has been translated into Spanish. We know that ASHA um, multicultural um, grant funding has been used to develop apps so um, Spanish speaking parents can have access to that um, Ablame Baby organization. And there's a lot of people doing this work too, so maybe it's just making connections. Um, Native, Book, Native Children's um, Research Exchange is another one, are these different organizations that focus on building and targeting early childhood programs and curriculum and capacity. Maybe that's where I need to be part of. And what I hope to be part of too is bringing these conversations to these spaces and these tables.
0: Yeah. I love, I love all of that. That sounds great. I I get really excited hearing people talk about big dreams because it's like, yes, this does need to be sustainable. This doesn't need to be something that was just created and begins and ends with the COVID pandemic. Of course we don't know what an end to the pandemic exactly looks like even at this stage, Um but this is a type of work that that does need to be sustainable. So I'm really excited about um, the future of this project and promoting it and getting the word out there and getting more people excited about it and supporting it. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I've learned all kinds of wonderful things. I feel like I've been nourished and fed today. So this is really wonderful. Thank you for sharing your work, your passions, and everything that you're doing. I really appreciate it, Dr. Jobs. Joshua Allison Burbank. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me.
0: Is anybody else just totally inspired by Dr. Allison Burbank? Like, I really hope I'm not the only one. <laughs> we joined a helping profession to help people, right? And I just love finding out all the incredible ways that SLPs go above and beyond to help people like you guys are so inspiring. I'm so honored to be a part of this community with all of you. So please be sure to check out the links and the resources in the show notes on speechuncensored.com where you can find ways to become involved in Dr. Allison Burbank's work and to support it. We covered lots of great tools in our discussion today. So hopefully you'll find links for all of those things that we talked about in the show notes on the website. And if you're a fan of the podcast, I love hearing from you. So please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share why you listen. This helps other SLPs find the podcast and decide to give it a try. And hopefully we can hook them in just like you are. (laughs) I wanna give a big thanks to the team at speechtherapypd.com for providing CEUs for this episode and giving it those beautiful editing touches um, that make me sound so much better. (laughs) It's my hope that our conversation today has nourished your mind so that your practice can flourish. Now I want you guys to go out there and be awesome. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at SpeechTherapyPD.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish.